The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Our show is all about the exciting world of real estate, and in particular, how it relates to the lucrative New York market. But if you're not planning a real estate transaction in New York, we still have plenty of information that you can use no matter where you are. Now, here's your host, Vince Rocco. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome back to another edition of Good Morning New York. It is Tuesday, December 23rd. It's almost Christmas. So Merry Christmas. I'm your host, Vince Rocco, and we are coming to you live as usual, from Blastoff Studios here in New York City. My guest today is esteemed real estate attorney Bruce Cohen. I've known Bruce for many years as my personal attorney and as and also in business with other deals. He is a founding partner of Cohen & Frankel, where he represents sellers and purchasers on a wide range of residential and commercial real estate transactions. We will talk to him in a few minutes, but first, a couple of news items. Vince, you know, before we launch into the news, it's good to see you this morning. Good morning. How are you, Ivy Ray? I'm good. Thank you very much. Are you ready for Christmas? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so it's a good thing today is 24 hours long, right? Well, I did my, you know, two-hour rush around the city yesterday afternoon after work to get somewhat prepared. And then probably, you know, when I leave here this afternoon at noon, I'll do the same thing. But no, I'm not ready. I won't be ready until I get in that car and take off. Yeah, where are you going? I'm going to my mom's, my sister's, my brother's. And uh, where are family. they? Up in Westchester, northern oh, cool. Westchester. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that. Yeah. And your mom is how old? She was just 81 in November. Wow. And mm-hmm. she's acting like a teenager, right? Uh, yeah, probably in her 20s. Yeah. Cool. All right. <laughs> I'll let you get to your news. Like... Okay. Well, thank you for the update. Just wanted to say hi. <laughs> Thank you, Ivy. All right. So <laughs> National Brokerage Coldwell Banker terminated its franchise agreement with the embattled Bellmark Group last week amid claims that the Manhattan firm failed to pay thousands of dollars in fees. Both companies told that to the, daily, uh, to the real deal. Bellmark and San Francisco-based Coldwell Banker entered into a franchise agreement in 2013, but their relationship took a nosedive this past summer. <laughs> Bellmark co-founder Neil Binder was sued by his business partners who alleged he embezzled hundreds of thousands of dollars from the company. A representative from Coldwell told The Real Deal late Friday afternoon that it had severed ties with its struggling brokerage. Quote, effective immediately, Coldwell Banker Real Estate has terminated its franchise agreement with the Bellmark Group due to the brokerage's continued failure to meet its contractual obligations. The weather outside is frightful, but uh, mm-hmm. it's sunny times for TV weatherman Sam Champion, who just sold his Lincoln Square penthouse for a cool $4.72 million, and this according to City Property Records. The spacious 1,950-square-foot apartment on the 33rd floor of 45 West 67th Street is a breezy two-bed, mm-hmm. two-and-a-half-bathroom apartment penthouse. It was originally asking 5995 earlier this year. Congratulations, Sam. Not a bad deal. Despite the gusto exhibited by New York City residential market in recent years, developers are now more likely to throw in add-ons to sway prospective buyers of new development projects. For developers, these incentives serve as alternatives to lowering the prices of their condo units. Banks prefer that developers do not reduce prices at all. 
Price chopping can also jeopardize units that are already in contract because some of those buyers may request a discount as well. Common incentives include footing the bill for a transfer tax or offering a storage locker or additional reserve parking spots. Let's see where that goes. Where the business goes, the brokers flow. The number of brokers and agents in Brooklyn's surging property market grew at a faster rate over the past year, more than in Manhattan. The new data on real estate licenses from the New York State Department of State shows the number of brokers and salespersons rose by 7% in 2014 to 10,004. In Manhattan, the number rose by 5.7% to 30,229. The Department of State, which issues and regulates real estate licenses, provided the figures to the real deal. The data includes the number of brokers and salespersons in each borough from December 13 to December 14. Queens saw a slightly slower growth. The number of brokers and salespersons rose there by 5.4% to 11,030. Okay, so here we go. Bruce has been instrumental in many large-scale exclusive and luxury real estate transactions, which include the largest co-op sale on record in Manhattan in 2008. He has handled real estate transactions in excess of $5 billion. We need to talk about that. Bruce is a graduate of SUNY at Buffalo and Brooklyn Law School. He is admitted to practice in the state of New York and is a member of the Bar Association of the City of New York and the New York Bar Association. Good morning, Bruce. Thank you for being here. Hi, Vince. How are you? Pretty good. All right. So, you know, why real estate? I mean, as an attorney, I mean, going to school, you could pick any kind of discipline or any kind of specialty to practice law. What is it about real estate that is so intriguing? Well, to start with, a little bit of it was serendipity. The first job I got as a a law clerk while I was in law school was at a law firm that did real estate and litigation. I quickly discovered that I didn't really like litigation. Uh, conflict wasn't my favorite thing. And I enjoyed the real estate aspect of it. Um, and I guess I went from there. I once had a client on a bad day, I was telling him I hate what he did. And he said, how can you hate what you do? You help make people's dreams come true. And I never really thought about it that way. But I think all the brokers and attorneys, if you think about it, that's sort of what we do. Now, that's exactly what we do. And it's, it's, it's interesting because, you know, this business, it's slow and it's steady or it's fast and it's steady, you know, litigation, you know, high drama, whatever. And everybody always tends to want to go for, you know, the biggest, you know, uh, stage. But I think real estate attorney um, work is um, unending and sometimes uh, not appreciated enough. You've done, I mean, it, it's amazing because you've done, f- according to your bio, $5 billion in transactions in the course of your career. Now, how long are you in this business? I don't remember exactly. Well, I'm 57 and I started when I was uh, like 27. So it's it's, wow. it's 30 years now. $5 billion. About maybe, you know, it, it could be more by now. Um we st- I started out doing deals that were at the lower level. Now we do all all different deals, but we do a lot of the high end deals that get done a, a good percentage of them. How many people are in your firm? There are four lawyers, um, two paralegals, and my mom. <laughs> your <Yeah>. mom? <laughs> my mom's worked with me since I started. Wow. And she does the closing statements and. Gets oh my God, them. that's right! I forgot about that. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh right. wow. So what? Is, so Cohen and Frankel is your firm, of course. What makes you guys different at Cohen and Frankel? Then I mean, listen, we're we're all in real estate here, and my panel can can attest to this. And there are so many law firms out there, but you guys are very well known. You guys are out there in a big way. What makes your firm? Do you guys do anything different in your firm than? all these others, because you do have some 
high ticket item brokers and deals and and you know big numbers. So what what goes on at Cohen and Frankel? Well, I think the main thing is our reputation is that of being deal makers and not deal breakers. Um, we also work very closely with the brokers, and we we look at it like we're a team. Um, the good brokers and the good lawyers want the deals to get done. If there's a deal that shouldn't get done because there's something awful about the building, which is rare, but it does happen, the good brokers don't want that to happen as well. And I think that there has been a historic conflict between lawyers and and uh, and brokers for no reason. Um, the other thing that we try to do that sets us apart mm-hmm. is availability. For example, um, I, I'm staying home this holiday because I know a lot of the other attorneys go away and a lot of foreigners come in and, and, and people from other cities and they want to buy real estate. So if their attorney's away, maybe that's another deal that we'll get. Absolutely. Um, this is a big time for certain buyers out there to do deals. Listen, you know, I joke about it on the radio every week. Uh, with the panel, but it's true. There is so much drama and so much trauma sometimes that goes on in a deal. And for you, for the listening audience out there who isn't familiar with New York real estate, a deal is our transaction uh, in real estate. So we call everything a deal. But while we go through these deals from start to finish, before the attorneys, during the attorneys, and sometimes after the attorneys, there's always so, so much drama. In your opinion, uh, as again, as a, as a lead attorney here, why is there such need for drama? I mean, we don't want it, but it exists all the time. Well, the funny thing is when I was 40, I bought the house that I now live in and I had rented up until then. And I think I became a much better attorney once I bought a house because Mm -hmm. I realized from the purchaser's perspective, it's a really scary thing. As a matter of fact, that down payment check is probably the biggest check someone's ever written. Um, So I think a lot of the drama is is manage its egos and its fear and I think our job as as brokers and attorneys is to manage expectations and try to take the fear away. And one of the ways I do that is I, on my business card, have my home number and my cell number and my work number. And everybody says, are you crazy? You give clients your home number? First of all, nobody answers their home phone anyway. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good point. (laughs) But it looks so good. It looks good. And also, if they they do call, they know they can always reach me. And that's, uh, um, that's comfort. There are a bunch of attorneys. I always joke and say my favorite line in Casablanca is not play it against Sam, it's round up the usual suspect. And it feels like there's around 12 of us that do, it's not the facts, but it feels like we do 80% of the deals. It's just a feel. The clients are always shocked how we all know each other when we get to closings and we right. know about each other's families. Yes. And, and it's know, a very small world, exactly. So it's just a comfort level that Conan Frankel tries to give our clients um, and also to manage expectations, as I said, I have a deal right now, $20 million deal that is falling apart over a chandelier. <gasps> and and the chandelier is probably – Please elaborate, elaborate yeah. because we talk about this uh, almost oh weekly, how little God. things like a li- lighting fixture can do this. But please go ahead. I, I, Love I feel it. like my job is a psychologist. Of course and, it, and, is. And, and it is. Of and I'm it not going to win this one, unfortunately. Yeah. But I win a lot of them. It's not win. It's such a silly thing. And it's 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 sometimes it's rich people behaving badly because the chandelier is a six thousand dollar chandelier. And personally, I I don't think it's all that good looking. But in any event, you, you just have to. What I say to a client is 
six months from now, you won't remember right. who the seller was. You'll be in your beautiful apartment or vice versa if I'm the seller. And, and that's the drama's egos. It really is egos. But it, I, I totally agree with you. And, and just to expand on that for just a minute, I mean, so a 6000 even if it were a $10,000 chandelier, and even if it did look good, okay? Right. Um, if you're spending $20 million, why go through the angst and the aggravation over a chandelier that you can go out tomorrow and buy again? Right. Absolutely. And and um, even if it was a hundred thousand dollar chandelier. And by the way, a hundred thousand dollars, a lot of money to me. But somebody buying or selling a 20 million dollar condo, it's 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 not it's 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 pocket change. You know, so I I don't I don't know. They could have had it personally made by, you know, light makers in Italy for that price. But you have to get the parties to understand and. And and that's where sometimes the partnership between the brokers and the attorneys work together well yeah. because the clients will always feel like if the broker gives that advice, they're only doing it for their commission. We work for a fee as well. So it's exactly. – it's, it's, and, and, and the client is going to either make money on the deal or buying a good deal. So the good people in each of the professions ha- are all working towards the same goal. So sometimes – as attorneys, we can say to you explain to the client and, and, and focus them a little and they don't think we don't have an incentive because mm. hopefully and I say to the clients, listen, I don't care personally whether you do the deal or not. Hopefully you'll use me on the next one if this doesn't go through. But this is silly. And sometimes it, it holds a little more credibility, whereas there are times where there are things I need to say and I find the broker can relay it better than I can. Yeah. Well said. Hold the thought. We have to take a break. Uh, but first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on the Variety Channel here at Voice America. Don't go away. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We're back with Bruce Cohen from uh, Cohen & Frankel. And we were just talking about uh, some closing drama. Anyway, so let me ask you what – I mean given all that and, and, and you know, all of us including brokers in, in this business, we don't necessarily know what our day is going to be like. We 
we think we do based on how we left it the night before. Uh-huh. We think we do based on our workload and based on the current client set. But what inspires you to get out the door each day in the morning to get to work, knowing really sort of almost the unknown? There's got to be something there that says, come on, Bruce, it's time to get up. Let's get out the door. Happy face. Get on that train and let's do it. I'm, I'm not so sure it, it, it's, it's inspiration. It's fear. Um, <laughs> every, every day is different, and I always joke, and I guess a lot of people do in their professions, I feel like a fireman. And you go into the office having left off yesterday, and two or three of these dramas we're speaking about rear their ugly head, and then you have to manage your time and, and, and figure out what you're going to do and prioritize Luckily, I depend on my staff for a lot of that. But really what it comes down to is is I know that um, if I don't get in there, um, I'm going to have a harder day the next day or so. <laughs> so with that said, tell us about a typical day. What is a typical day in, in the life of a very busy real estate attorney here in New York City? I can only just imagine uh, based on what my days are like. Well, I'm not an early bird. This is actually early for me. So I get in probably later than most of my staff. I get in around 10, 15. Um, I get in and there's at least three or four or five phone calls waiting for me. I prioritize, make those calls. Um, if we have closings that day, we've probably prepared for them and check, cut the checks the day before. So, for example, the type of drama that might come up is – People do the walkthroughs right before the closing. Oh, so if I have a 12 o'clock closing or even a, a, an 11 o'clock closing, I'll get a call. Um, they took the, the, the lighting fixture in, in the bathroom or, um, or there's a scratch in the floor in the living room. And um, that's where, by the way, I, I do a lot of lecturing of the brokers. And for me, it's so much more helpful when the brokers understand the law. For example... New York is an as-is state. So other than the reps we get about heating, plumbing, and electric being in working order, I always tell my clients, and this comes down to managing expectations. If I represent a buyer, they're not buying a new apartment. So that means, and I give them this example, if there's a Persian rug and the rug gets removed and there's a broken floorboard, you're stuck with it. It's so much better if you tell the clients up front, then it becomes a drama and then the lawyers try to win something. And when it's brought up to me at a closing and I'm on the other side, I'll, I'll just say the exact thing. And I'll even say, listen, you should have told your client. Usually I call the attorney's side and say it. So, again, it comes down to trying to avoid those problems at closing. And um, so the typical day is basically doing contracts, getting ready for closings and fielding a lot of calls, hopefully for new clients that are coming on board. What is the hottest deal you've done so far to date? I mean, again, $5 billion worth of deals over 30 years, as you said. There's got to be one, maybe three that raise their head above the water and say, okay, so I'm number one. Well, what type well, of deal was that? The, we, we did – the only name I'll mention because it's not like a client's name per se, the bank that took over the um, uh, Guccione townhouse, which is a double, mm. double uh, with um, townhouse – um, that was a very hot deal, and that there was a, a lot of uh, um, there was a lot of people vying for it at once, and it was in the papers a lot. We represent a lot of celebrities, um, so we get calls, but I never speak to the media about. I, I no. never will say names. Um, they almost know already. They call and they go, "I know you're not going to say, but did you?" By the way, the way they know that we represent them is when the deed is recorded. 
we we have the deed returned to us. Um, as a matter of fact, when clients buy in an entity, I will oftentimes tell the client, even if they're at the closing, give me authorization to sign the closing documents so they can figure out who the client is. And we mm-hmm. also I also tell them don't name the um, the entity your kid's name or something that somebody can mm-hmm. actually figure out. Um, so that that's one of them. Uh, a lot of celebrity deals, but unfortunately, I've been on a four of the deal of the years. Um, that's never a good thing. It no, means it, me- it means <laughs> that's a lo- high drama. It means a lot of bad things happened, and somehow the deal closed. <laughs> so I, I don't know if I could answer it any other way than than. I that heard way. a couple of really funny stuff. Well, not funny, funny and sad to, to, together. Uh, at this year's Deal of the Year Award, uh, and you wonder sometimes how those deals actually do close because it's extraordinary. But do you have a secret for closing very difficult deals? Because sometimes they're pretty standard typical and sometimes they really are difficult, not not necessarily drama, but just difficult. I think the uh, I think it's a combination of being a psychologist with all the parties, uh, knowing when to call the other attorney out of the office and privately have a conversation and try to reason Mm -hmm. with that person or call your broker out or call your client out or even something as simple as saying to the client, don't come to the closing, give me a power of attorney and be available (laughs) by phone because there are times where you just know nothing good can happen with them being there. There could be times where you know throughout there's going to be an issue with the closing and sometimes it's pretty helpful to be able to say, I can't reach my client. I'm sorry. Look, we either close or we don't close. And there are times, although I don't like conflict, where you have to be tough. And I've said to my client at points where I felt the other side was really being ridiculous, come on, let's go. We're leaving. And I've picked up my stuff and started walking out the door. And nine times out of ten, you get called back in and and you're successful. And get it done. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. I think you answered this before, but how important is the broker community uh, to you as a real estate attorney? I mean, you know, well, one hand washes the other, uh, but really, I mean, I think a good uh, working relationship is always m- much more positive. Listen, we, we don't we don't get the deals. Um, I always make sure I thank the brokers, even if they didn't send me the deal, because without them, we wouldn't have the deal. Um, they they are our biggest source of business. Um I've had clients that loved my service, told me they loved my service, and then five years later, they're on the other side of the table. And I'm like, wow, I thought you liked me. And they're like, oh, you were great. My, my broker told me to, you know. So, right. But in, in general, um, there's nothing like a good broker for our business because they make these deals happen. And, and I have to tell you, brokers have made some of my clients millionaires. Um, I have clients that just keep buying in the new construction buildings, they get in really early in each one. And these are clients that were fairly well off to start with. And now they could retire if they wanted because they do this in every building. Um, I've also made some really close friends in the brokerage business. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Same here. And, and it's interesting how you say people are making – I have a couple of clients that do the same thing. They buy and sell mostly new development buildings. And before you know it, at the end of six, seven transactions – you start add, adding up the proceeds. It's it's quite a lot of money. So you wonder, you know, the smart investor out there is going to pay attention and, and really work very closely with his uh, real estate uh, uh, broker and his real estate attorney. And hopefully they're a team because you can do some really magical stuff out there. Where is where is the market right now? I mean, I think we started 2014 on the heels of 2013, very high, very robust. 
I think uh, limited inventory, uh, over asking prices, bidding wars, etc. I thought I, I think from the summertime through Christmas time now it's kind of plateaued. Where out of your office and the deals you see, where where do you think we are in the market right now? I think we're on a we're, we're in a very strong place. I found that it slowed <clears throat> down in around August and September, maybe part of October. But after that, we've we've been flying ever since. And I also think that there's been a lot of um, a lot of buyers have gone to the sidelines because they were just tired of losing bidding wars. Mm-hmm. I think there's a lot of pent up. Um, People really want to buy, and I think after the first of the year, they're going to come flying out the gates. I just wanted one other quick thing going back. You had said to me what makes us different. One of the other good things with new constructions with our firm is we're friendly with a lot of the developers, and a lot of the new construction projects, you have to be friends and family to get in the door. Absolutely. We know we have gotten brokers into – Many of the buildings because of our relationship with wow. either the sales agents or with the developers themselves. That's big. That's that's very big. Uh, I worked on site for six years in uh, three different buildings, and I know what it takes to get people in and how people are knocking doors down sometimes. And I'm going to remember in. that. <laughs> you do. <laughs> So I agree with you. I think come what January, the the buyers are going to be uh, flying out the door because they've been holding off, kind of a little frustrated with the with the over you know bidding situation, uh, bidding wars, lack of inventory. Unfortunately, we still are at a lack of inventory yeah. come what the beginning of the year. I suspect, but I think the buyers are going to be out there, and that'll just fuel hopefully um, some real good transactions. Are you involved at all with the foreign market? Obviously, you mentioned before that you have uh, some foreign buyers, but it, it, what's the percentage of your business foreign versus domestic? I'm making it up, but I feel like it's about 40% foreign, and in the new construction, it may even be more. We have a very strong um, practice of of foreign buyers, again, um, from some of the brokers that refer us, um, but yeah, good percentage. Um, How do you build and maintain relationships with the clients? I mean, you mentioned it before, and sometimes clients stray, but what what do you think is your, your differential, you know, you individually with your client? I mean, how do you keep these people? I mean, you know, for us as agents, it's difficult sometimes as well. We think we do all we can, and we think that they're loyal, and all of a sudden, you know, someone goes and strays down the wrong path, but right. what what can you give us by way of advice is to keep and hold our customers? Yeah, we... The only thing we do is if we tell a client if they have a problem, even though we work on a flat fee, but if we if they have a problem afterwards and it's not like a litigation, I tell them just call me and gratis we will try to solve the problem or lead them in the right direction. Mm-hmm. Um, as far as, as it is for the brokers, you really have to stay in touch with the clients. We don't because like I said, even if we do, they end up going to the broker and the broker refers somebody. But I have seen some unbelievable um, instances of disloyalty from brokers that have done unbelievable jobs for clients. So I I think it's just important that you stay in touch with them. And a lot of the brokers become friends with their clients, and that's probably the best way. Not that you should do it only for that reason. No, no, no. But but through the transaction, you're right. I mean, you do tend to become friends with with most of your customers and some not for, you know, a variety of reasons, but you you do make that connection. Um, We've got a couple of minutes left and I wanted to ask you outside of real estate, you are on various committees of the Boys and Girls Clubs in Northern Westchester where I know you you live. Tell us a little bit about that, the other side of Bruce Cohen. (laughs) My wife has her own pure marketing firm with offices in Hartford, New York City and Mount Kisco. And the Boys and Girls Club was her first client. 
And now she probably has 40 clients and 20 people working for a her. A great organization. They're it really a great is. great organization. Yeah. And um, My son was involved in that when he was little. Yeah, we owned, it, we owned it's up It's an Bedford. unbelievable organization. And yeah. it's, it's terrific. We, we live in, in Mount Kisco, Chappaqua area, and there is a Mount Kisco Boys and Girls yep. Club made up of Bedford. And also there's a lot of Ecuadorian and Honduran immigrants who live in the in the neighborhood as well. Really? And the really nice thing about the Mount Kisco Boys and Girls Club is you have people who are their kids their parents are CFOs and CEOs and mm-hmm. they're going to school with the gardeners kids and yep. the relationship with them and they swim together at the Boys and Girls Club yeah. and it, it's it's a wonderful organization. We have 1 minute left. What's next for Bruce Cohen? <laughs> Where do we go from here? I I think I keep doing the same thing I'm doing <laughs> now, uh hopefully better. Um, and, uh, I, I love to cook. So that's just kind of a passion. Ah. I don't know if I would do that for, a I living. do too. What's your favorite meal? Cook. Well, I like making asabuco and risotto and oh, I, and nice. I like making paella. As a matter of fact, I made paella for Thanksgiving with the turkey and with a, with a leg of <laughs> All lamb. three of those things I'll come for dinner. Oh Trust God. me. I would love to have you come for dinner. Asabuco. Oh my God. Terrific. All the right. Major listen. foodies. Major foodies. Oh. All right. Bruce Cohen, thank you so much from Cohen and Frankel. We will come back after this break. But first, you are listening to Good Morning New York on Voice America. Don't go away. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Streaming live. The leader in Internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. Welcome back. Uh, we just got finished talking to Bruce Cohen from Cohen and Frankel. Thank you so much, and I want to wish everybody a happy holiday if you're just joining us. And joining us right now are my panel, Parul Brombat from Core Group, Niall Lundgren from Dalian Realty, Ivy Ray from Blue Realty Group, Rachel Altshuler from Douglas Element, Phil Horrigan from LeaseBreak.com, and Deborah Hoffman from Town Residential. Uh, so good morning, everybody, and happy holidays. Good morning. Happy good morning. So let's talk about building amenities for a minute. Um, sometimes it's not enough to be attractive to lure buyers and keep them happy. Top buildings often often have to entertain residents too. Many listings are 
for better or worse, judged for the breadth and quality of their amenities, the gym in the basement of an exclusive co-op or the summer camp's worth of tennis courts, swimming pools, golf simulators, uh, etc. Being able to practice golf swings in front of a virtual fairway may not come cheap. Whether the resident has to pay for the privilege, though, additional fees or inflated common charges, whatever. So with so many buildings investing in on-site recreation, more perk-laden listings are out there than prospective buyers may realize. And this is according to uh, both StreetEasy and the New York Times. So let me ask you guys out there who represent lots of buyers um, in new developments and other buildings, why are amenities you know, driving sales at these new condo buildings? Are they as important as people you know, place importance on. I'll say I one thing. That, I I'm shocked. It, I think developers have to keep up with the Joneses, right? More developers are adding these luxury amenities into the mix. And I think you said earlier, Vince, that they lure clients. And, you know, I've been at, on numerous showings in these luxury buildings, and I don't see anybody using the amenities. So I think it's just a, a way to get people in the door. And the, the bigger and fancier the amenities are, I think the more beneficial it is for the developers to just get people in. And then once they're in there, they have the ambiance, they have the feel, and then they get to the apartment and, you know, all of it blended together, it creates the sale. And a lot of these buildings are actually located in emerging markets. So you have a longer walk to the train or there just haven't been stores, commercial stores and properties around these condos. So you have to put the bowling alley and the virtual golf and the ping-pong table and the common lounge and all that stuff. So people are drawn, like Niall said. So, Niall, just to get back to your point, because I I agree with you, sometimes, oftentimes, you know, when I'm showing buildings, most especially in the the newer condo-type high-rises, you you know, you always show the amenity floor, whatever, and you go downstairs, you walk into the gym, and there literally is no one there, and this goes on most of the day. So, you know, and I think people realize this, although they claim they need to have all these amenities, they very seldom will use it. But do you think sometimes people are thinking that I need this for my resale? Somewhere down the road, resale, this may make a difference? I think they need it for resale, but I think more importantly, a lot of my investor clients are drawn to buildings like this so that their rental numbers are higher every month. Yeah. Oh, uh, Okay. I also think there's a number of things going on here. One of the things that we all do is we're selling a lifestyle. And a lot of people have a fantasy of, oh, I'm going to do laps in the pool every day. What a great place to practice my golf swing. But once they move in, it doesn't happen. Um, A number of years ago, the New York Times did a survey of all the buildings built in the 80s and 90s, I do believe, that had swimming pools. And they found that the swimming pools were used in the mornings for people who do laps, at night, and the month of June when people are getting swimming lessons for their children pre-camp. So also when we're using or when we're showing apartments, it's the middle of the day. Everyone's at work. I'm always curious to see in the evenings and in the early mornings how many people are using these amenities. Well, one thing uh, that I'll add, too, is that I think sometimes with buyers versus renters, buyers sometimes are a little more discerning. So sometimes they will look to see, well, am I really going to use this? What are the costs going to be to maintain it? For example, pools are very expensive to maintain. You'll often see the common charges higher. And it, it, it does work with rental buildings, too. A lot of people are drawn to it because, hey, I'm only going to be here for a year or two. Let's get some bowling lessons in, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think that largely yeah. it works as well. I've lived in one of the one of the finest buildings in the city from my perspective. And it was the same thing you guys are saying that during the day there was very little going on. 
5 in the morning, 5.30 a.m., packed in the evening, packed. Really? The pool, the amenities and everything. But also I think, you know, an aim is the people that consistently use it are the ones I find smart because New York City's hard. Our right, lives so, are hard. Well, yeah, but here's a question and, though. So do, do people prefer to work out in their buildings, for example, and we're, we're, we're singling out the gyms in these buildings – over working out in a, in, a, in a public club outside of the building, I think for me, I would prefer to be not in my neighbor's face in the morning or at night, but mm-hmm. out in the gym meeting other people. I don't know. What, what's the feeling on that? I think you're right. That's valid. I was going to say that as well. Is you that are? people Sorry. love also – no, it's OK. <laughs> did you get in my head? I did. <laughs> it's uh, – I think people also love – you know, most people working out as a social component. You have the capacity to meet new people and it's also fun to like be around new people even if you're not going to socialize with them. So there's another whole reason to have an outside club. And pools. Yeah, you know, I would say that I feel that there's sort of like a – I, I, I don't know if the bell curve is the right shape. I'm trying to figure out what graph I'm seeing in my mind. But um, I feel like if it's a larger building in what Rachel said, sort of a peripheral neighborhood where it is sort of a hike to get to a gym or to a bowling alley or whatever, that the amenities are much more appreciated. I think, you know, if you're investing, then those amenities are much more appreciated by renters because then it cuts costs for them. Um, however, I do, uh, to sort of echo Phil, um, I definitely have buyers who are, who, when they're looking to live there themselves, um, a lot of times they're just saying, do I really need this extra maintenance cost, uh, to live in this building? So if it's a larger building, like a building that has three to 500 units, um, a lot of times, um, amenities really do get used. Um, I could name specific buildings like the Orion, for, for example, on 42nd Street, or if you look at uh, the Edge buildings um, in Williamsburg, um, you know, if you walk into their gyms anytime, you really do see a lot of people using the amenities. So I think it's also about building culture. Um, and I think there's a lot to do with age group as well. I've noticed that a lot of times it's uh, the buildings that sort of cater to first-time or younger buyers that tend to have a lot more uses in the gym, perhaps because, you know, there's investment bankers who are working long hours. And when they get home, whether it's, you know, at 11 p.m. at night or 5 a.m. in the morning, it's just easier to access the gym in their own own building. So I think there's a variety of, I think it's sort of like different strokes, different folks situation. Um, and, but I think that there's an argument on both ends. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. And, you know, when I'm, when I'm selling new development um, condos, either on site or not, you know, the two biggest things that always pop up, <clears throat> excuse me, are indoor pools uh, and parking garages, even more so than uh, gyms or fitness rooms. So let's talk a minute about uh, parking garages. We talked about this a while ago on the show, and well, there's a one famous example where one building was selling uh, parking spaces for one million dollars. So you know, um, parking is invaluable in Manhattan. It is invaluable, so cool. but when you're taking buyers out for the first time. Is it a requirement, I guess, if they're looking for new development, do they tell you specifically that they want a, a garage in their building or is it just one of those nice things to have? I, f- I feel like a lot of times when, you, when you're working with a buyer, the, they might ask that at first, especially if they're not familiar with Manhattan. They'll say, oh, I want a parking garage in the building. And then once they start seeing that there's really a parking garage in every corner, this particular building you like may not have it. They sometimes come around a little bit on their desires. But look, there are some there are some buyers that say yeah. I absolutely have to have a parking garage in the building and there are buildings to cater to that. I had one once and I got to tell you something out of all the buildings I've lived in and you all know I, I always, you know, 
uh, tell you that I love pre-war, but I did live in a post-war at one point, and it was a new, new building, and it did have a garage, and I loved it. It was a perfect perk and a perfect um, way to get in and out quickly whenever you wanted to use my car, which was quite often, probably more so because I had the garage downstairs than not. Pools. I mean, you know, again, selling selling new development, everybody wanted a pool. And you know what? None of my buildings ever had a pool, and some people walked out of the building sales office because we didn't have one. What is the big deal about a pool? <laughs> I don't get it. I think, again, it's selling a lifestyle. I've had many buyers who wanted pools, and mm. then after they purchased in buildings with pools, I would run into them, I would stay in touch with them, and I'd say, so are you loving the pool? And every single one said, we never use it. Bingo. I think the thing to consider, too, is the hours of operation. You know, Perul said that you, know, you have investment bankers who are working crazy hours, and the pool hours of operation really, you know, are during the day because they have to have a lifeguard on duty. So a lot of times, if you have somebody who's working crazy hours, they can't even use the pool. Yeah, Niall is right because there's a lot of insurance problems with having pools and buildings. I don't remember what the insurance is, but they must have a lifeguard on duty unless you could prove that you are a certified lifeguard to swim there. And it's a lot of scary insurance stuff for buildings. So, yes, that is a problem. Yeah, the, I the, actually the... find that a lot of my customers who um, have kids are drawn to, to buildings with pools because of, you know, the kids going to classes. And oh, um, reasons, I actually, yeah. I think a lot of people do use pools. We just don't see them during the day when we show apartments. Uh-huh. I agree with you. I find a lot of the people that I know use their pools. A lot of people with kids live in the pools because if you're a parent, you know kids and water are a real good thing. Yeah, you see them and, sometimes downstairs with nannies and lifeguards. Yeah. that all kinds of people go, oh, my God, it's a pool. I'm going to swim. And often you find the only people that swim are the ones that moved into the building because they are swimmers. And they're going to swim every day because it's part of what they do for their sanity and their health, you know, so – so then it's safe to say, to wrap this segment up, that we, as Deborah pointed out a couple of times here in this segment, that it's really about a lifestyle. Not everybody is looking for amenities. Not everybody needs to have a pool, a rooftop, uh, a fitness center, a gym, whatever you want to call it, or a parking garage. It really depends on who you are. Maybe it's the, the uh, first-time buyer versus the, the, the senior buyer, meaning the person who's bought you know, multiple times before. So again, as I tell my new agents when I'm talking to them and training them, um, uh, in the office, you know, vet your customers out clearly, you know, perfectly well because at the end of the day, they will tell you they want this and they actually want something else. So you got to find out up front so your time isn't wasted and theirs isn't either. We're going to talk about personal mortgages and how it's affected, how ba- buildings are affected. So a lot of times in condo and co-op buyers often assume that they've got the money in the bank, a solid credit history and steady income. Uh, and that they'll have no trouble getting a mortgage. Not so fast. The bank has to sign off on the building. This is the problem, the building. You personally could have all the credentials in the world. You can be uh, mortgage passable, but the building you want to buy in is not. And I think people don't pay attention to that. Uh, So the bank has to sign off on the building just as they do on the borrower, and the process is trickier than you'd expect. Most lenders, especially the big banks, follow guidelines from Fannie Mae, that set out whether a building is a safe investment or warrant or warrantable, excuse me. When your lender tells you that you're pre-approved, that doesn't mean that the building is pre-approved. So you've got to ask the questions. When we come back from the break, we're going to talk about the differences in being personally pre-approved and then the building pre-approved. So don't go away. You are listening to Good Morning New York on the Voice America Variety Channel. We'll be right back. 
the Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. Put Blue Realty Group to work for you. Blue Realty Group is a full-service luxury real estate brokerage firm in Manhattan. With our global reach, unrivaled marketing capabilities, and veteran team, Blue serves some of the world's most exclusive and high-profile buyers and sellers. Visit us today at BlueRealtyGroup.com. At Blue Realty Group, we feel that people matter and results count. Our mission with you is to meet and deliver expectations to drive the results you want. We're ready now. Visit BlueRealtyGroup.com. That's B-L-U-RealtyGroup.com. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. You are listening to Good Morning New York, Real Estate with Vince Rocco. If you want to call into the program, we're toll-free in North America at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to vrocco at bluerealtygroup.com. That's vrocco at blurealtygroup.com. Now, back to the show. All right, everybody. We're back with our panel, Perul Brumbat and Al Lundgren. Ivy Ray, Rachel Altshuler, Phil Horrigan, and Deborah Hoffman. So we were talking before the break. When a lender tells you that you're pre-approved, that doesn't mean that the building is pre-approved. So you could potentially not be able to get financing on an apartment in a building that you want to. So let's let's break that up a little bit. So what are the most common problems to look out for when you are getting pre-approved and then final approved and you're, say, looking at a new condo de- uh, development building or mostly any condo these days in New York? For example, the building does not have enough money in the bank. What does that mean? You know, legal problems. Uh, stores or offices are taking up too much space. Not enough buyers yet if this is a new development uh, situation. You've got to have, I think, greater than 40 or 50 percent before a bank is comfortable in loaning. Uh, or one owner in the building has too many apartments, therefore too many shares, therefore too much power. Mm-hmm. So let's kind of talk about that a little bit. Building, um, building that doesn't have enough money. What does that mean? What, you know, what what is the bank looking for from the building? Well, it the co-opera condo. So that in the event that there's an assessment, be it local law eleven or the boiler breaks, that they'd have cash. Um, to pay for those repairs or upgrades, as opposed to if they didn't, then there could be you know hefty assessments um, per per apartment in the building that the owners would have to pay for. Deborah, you were saying that, something. I was going to say that deals mostly with co-ops, and Niall's absolutely right. Um, with condos, there's a problem that most condos do not have reserve funds, mm-hmm. and since the economic downturn. Uh, Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, who buy many of the loans, will not lend in buildings that don't have huge reserve funds. So all the condos are saying, what? So you'll see, especially in new development, that part of your purchases, or even in a resale in a condo, you will have to pay a few months of maintenance, uh, not maintenance, common charges, to the condo association to build up this reserve fund to keep the building warrantable. Well, you know, that's very true, and I've had that situation ongoing with one of my buildings that I sold the entire building out, and as resales have started, you know, the reserve fund has, you know, dropped below, I think, 10%. 
And, you know, I had a deal earlier this year where the the sponsor or the, the building had to put more money into the, into the reserve fund because three banks wouldn't lend in that building. Now, here's a building that's completely finished. Here's a building that, you know, we've turned over uh, maybe three years ago we finished selling there. And here's a building that people want to start reselling and moving on with their lives. And a bank is coming in and telling their buyers, I'm sorry, but the reserve fund is not there or – it's too low. Therefore, it's too much of a risk and we can't lend. So, you know, there are many things that you can do. And Deborah said one thing about, you know, adding to the um, to the um, pot by increasing your, your common charges. However, that's not necessarily always enough. And in this particular case, we had to get the building to get the sponsor to put more money into the fund so we can get two of the banks to agree to close. So, this is something that even in existing condos, and this is not just new development, in existing mm-hmm. condos you've got to be very mindful of. And I tell yeah. you, it comes up almost every time in the past couple of years. Go ahead, yeah, wouldn't it be a smart, you know, when our guest previously said one of his favorite things or he finds one of the most important things is for brokers to be informed. And mm-hmm. one of the things, if you, well, if I get, you know, you get a new buyer. Don't get me started on that one. Yeah, Go ahead. I know, right? But you get one of the smart things for, for maybe younger, you know, new agents that are listening in. If you get a new buyer and they're interested in shopping, let's say in Chelsea and maybe financial district, I'm just picking neighborhoods, and you do a quick peruse in their price point, and then, you know, you might want to do your homework and find out what the funding, what the fund is like in the building because there's nothing worse and whether or not there's any legal issues with the sponsors and what the renter to buyer a home excuse me owner occupy ratio there are a few things that really have banks not lending in buildings and you know i was heavily involved in one of the buildings that had some of the most problems and thank god we had lots of foreign investors interested in purchasing because i moved in to do major sales in the building and had we not had a lot of foreign investors, we would have been in trouble because we kept losing our banks. Exactly. Let, let's move on to legal problems because aside from the money – the building rather not having enough reserve fund or enough money in the bank, uh, so to speak, there are legal issues that come up in condominiums or, or in co-ops. But I'm thinking more along the lines of – well, let's use an example. So a new development – let's use my building uh, that, that um, we finished good. selling three years ago. I know my building. Um, and, you know – when you when you you transfer from the sponsor to the board and to the, from the board to the building, there's always going to be a couple of problems. There are going to be people in the building who complain, mm-hmm. you know, the roof is leaking or this is not right or the elevator is making a noise or whatever. And then somewhere, some down the road, you know, a bunch of people in the building decide to sue the sponsor. Yeah. Now, now, the building's turned over. Okay, it's a couple of years later. Sponsors being sued by owners in the building. You get a listing. It's your exclusive. You need to sell that apartment. You get a buyer. An attorney comes in, and Bruce probably could have answered this question very well. And the attorney says, I'm sorry, but you know there's litigation in this building, and I'm, you're going to have problems with the bank. Litigation in the building has nothing to do with you as the buyer, nothing to do with your seller, has nothing to do with your, the agents, but there's litigation in the building. What <coughs> is that about? I've had, a, I've had a few examples of this with buyers. And sometimes it's really tough. If, if the litigation, if the, if the number, uh, the dollar amount is very high, it could be a very difficult thing. But uh, usually what you need to do as a broker and as a lawyer and a buyer is to just get as much information as possible. So that's what we've done in the past. Often the banks will still loan, but they need to get more information. Yep. 
Uh, they need to hear something from the managing agent about what the current status of the lawsuit is. What's the dollar amount? Uh, how far along are they in the process? So you, you, can, you can work through it. You just have to get a lot of information and often it will work out. Not always. <laughs> no, no, no. Yeah, yeah. But, well, not always. And I had yeah. a situation where a, another one of my buildings that I sold out, I took a listing. It was a beautiful two-bedroom, a, a million nine. This is about two years ago. Uh, and I had done my homework up front, and I realized that there was litigation. Several owners in that building were suing the sponsor. And I said to the seller, you know, you know whatever. He said, oh, don't worry about it. Let's just sell it. Okay, fine. So we get to the point where it's not a cash deal. It's a finance deal. And the bank just said, hey, listen. So we had to actually take that apartment off the market for a couple of months until the litigation got solved. It did get solved. It was minor, but yet it was on paper, in the board minutes, whatever, and we had to take it off. We put it back on and we sold it without a problem. But, you know, these are important things. Again, when people run around and all of our clients do this and say, oh, well, I can get a mortgage. I could afford it. I have money in the bank. I have a good salary. Be careful where you're buying. Moving on to stores and offices taking up too much space. What does that mean? Stores and offices at the, at the bottom of these buildings. What is that about? where it can hinder you getting financing. Huh? Nobody and, knows. Nobody well, knows. The regulation is, is that well, yeah. um, the banks just have a specific regulation uh, that if, if, um, if commercial property in the building, so it's about what percentage of the building is residential and owner-occupied versus being commercial space. And they don't delineate between the difference of like a retail space versus office spaces sprinkled throughout the building. So what happens is, let's say there's a mixed-use building and there's offices in the building and there's also residential people living in apartments as residences. Well, that's not a very ideal um, investment for a bank. Um, it's not as warrantable, so to speak, because, um, because it's not the type of building that a lot of people would want to live in. So as a result, it's considered to be a riskier investment. However, the interesting thing to me is, is the fact that that separation is not made in by the banks because really having a commercial space in a lot of buildings, um, what it actually can do is mitigate a lot of carrying costs. In fact, there are buildings in the city where the owners don't have common charges at all because the commercial space actually brings in a really nice amount for the building itself. So it's a really interesting, that, that's an interesting one. Um, and I would hope that over time, some of those regulations would change, but that's sort of what is at play on that they do they, cool. they do change from time to time, but basically Fannie Mae's standard rule is that if you have commercial space, you know, like a doctor's office or, or a store, Dwayne Reed, whatever, they don't want it to take up more than 20% of the buildings because then the, they're going to have issues with, you know, financing. The other one is, you know, the, the not enough buyers yet in a new development. And basically, you know, the one that's an issue um, that tends to crop up in new development because a building needs to have at least 70% of its apartments already in contract to, to be considered warrantable before lenders will give you the money and before you will close. So again, I've had this problem multiple times before in selling new development. You know, we'd get to a point where we're 50% sold or 40% sold. You know, the sponsor wants to start closings and our preferred lender, whoever that may be at the time, says, I'm sorry, but we're not at that number yet. Now, buyers get frustrated because buyers want to close, right? Sponsor gets really frustrated because he wants to start making his money back and salesperson wants to start making commissions. So it's kind of like, okay, wow. all three of us are looking at each other like, well, who's going to win this one? So what does it come down to? Sponsor says, Vince, sell more apartments and sell them quickly. Have you well, guys run into that? Yes. This is actually very interesting. I just learned this a few weeks ago. 
is what some of the new developers are doing now in order to get that ratio up is, and I don't know how they're doing it, I wish our attorney were still here, but they are counting, let's say it's a conversion. I learned more about conversions. And they are counting the insider sales as part of that ratio, and the banks are taking it. Uh, okay, well, it's but about the number of signed contracts, and I think that what's really important for a lot of new development is to just forge a relationship or multiple relationships with banks um, that will, you know, look at the product um, from a new development standpoint and change those requirements, and that can be done. Um, I'm sure most of us who have done new development have sort of forged those mm-hmm. relationships where, you know, lenders will say that, you know, we're willing to lend after you know, 25 or 50% in contract, et cetera. Um, you know, so it depends on what sort of building it is, the location, what viability the blank, the bank will see to make an exception. So exceptions are definitely made on new development. Uh, All right, sure. guys, unfortunately, we have to stop right there. It is a fast-moving show today, and I wanted to say that is it for Good Morning New York this week. We are back next Tuesday morning live at 9 a.m. Eastern for our New Year's show. You can always catch the show later in the day or on podcast anytime on our website, voiceamerica.com. I would like to wish everyone a happy Hanukkah, Merry Christmas, happy holiday, enjoy, be safe. And for all of us here at Voice America all around the world, thanks for joining me and I will see you next time. Thanks for tuning in this week. Please join us for another edition of Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco next Tuesday at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Here's hoping all of your transactions are successful ones. We'll be right back.